and welcome to Telling the Tale. I'm your host, Mitchell Farley-Wolf. I'm a game dev, but I have not worked at Telltale. You may have known me from my very, very, very brief work on the game Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 Plus 2, and I'm here with my co-host, Dustin. Dustin Jackson. Hi! Hello! I'm Dustin Jackson. That, that Dustin Jackson he was just talking about, that's me. I'm that one. Cool. What have you done? Um, so I'm an artist. I, uh, I draw little cartoony things. I make some comics here and there. Um, I worked for a little bit on the Cartoon Network animated series Mighty Magiswords as a designer. And since then, I've just done various uh, illustration work, some uh, design work, comic work, uh, all that great stuff. Where have you not worked? I have not worked at Telltale Games, nor have I worked on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater oh, HD well, 1 and 2. That second one's fine. But the Telltale thing, I think, is important to discuss because we're going to be talking in this podcast about Telltale Games and their library. And we might be making some assumptions here and there about how the development of these games went down or what the designers were thinking in in particular spaces. And that is because Telltale is a very interesting company. Uh, it, It has a very interesting story behind it. You know what, Dustin? Let's go ahead and tell some of that story. Let's do it, actually. That sounds pretty good to me. I feel like these listeners might want to hear that story. Okay. In 2004, they were founded. They were founded by former LucasArts developers who are probably most known for their work on game series like Monkey Island or Day of the Tentacle or Sam and Max, the the original Sam and Max Hit the Road from 1993. But uh, LucasArts stopped prioritizing adventure games of that specific genre in 2004 and they canceled Sam and Max Freelance Police which was currently in or not currently but at the time in development and three of the developers from that game Kev Bruner, Dan Connors and Troy Molander founded Telltale Games in order to keep doing that kind of game they wanted to do Telltale Games however fell on September 21st 2018 We'll get to that. Um, would you say that Telltale is, at the time that it existed, it was probably the biggest name in narrative video games? I'd say so, mainly because that's what they uh, specialized in. All their games kind of had that as the focus. That's true. Um, we will probably be using the term narrative games to um, denote a game that is primarily designed to tell a story rather than test mechanics. Telltale first gained a modest amount of notoriety in 2006 with Sam and Max Season 1, and that stayed in the world of the mechanics of those old LucasArts point-and-click adventure games. You'd point on an object, click uh, that you'd pick up that object, you could use an object on another object in the universe, and then you would solve puzzles that way and get to the end of a story that way. But Telltale really became a big deal, a quite a large company, in 2012, thanks to The Walking Dead Season 1, where it won a bunch of Game of the Year awards. Uh, did you play The Walking Dead when it came out? Um, I didn't play it right when it came out. I played it a little while after that, though. Like, all my friends had already played it, and I had some people telling me, oh, no, you'd like this game, and it, it wasn't really the kind of game I was into at the time, but uh, I'm glad I played it. I enjoyed it a lot, 
And I can see why it was such a big deal. Yeah, The Walking Dead was a shift for Telltale in what their games were like. They were always very narrative games, but now they were almost only watching a story unfold. And maybe you could choose uh, for your character to do one action versus another or to say one thing versus another thing. And you would sort of go through the game like a choose-your-own-adventure book. It kind of put more emphasis on the story itself as a gameplay mechanic rather than, like, puzzle solving. Yeah, and that structure became the structure that they would make all of their games within after that point. After that point, there were no games that weren't like The Walking Dead, probably because The Walking Dead was such a huge success. Another thing about Telltale that is important to note is that they always released games episodically, typically in five-episode seasons. And what that would mean is instead of making a video game and then just putting it out on one day, they would divide up the video game into portions and maybe have one episode of the game come out every month or so, something like that. And that was really not seen in the world of video games before that. Um, the few people that had tried things like that, it usually didn't work out. And it, it sort of converted their market from a movie-structured market or, or a market that would emulate what movies do, where you have this big sort of production that leads to one release day and people all go to the theater and they see it and it's a big deal, but then it's over, to a more television-based production where you have a rolling schedule of these episodes of a game that are coming out over more than half a year or something like that. And also, they pretty much only ever did licensed games. They picked up the franchises of other people, worked with them. Sam and Max is a comic originally written by Steve Purcell and owned by him. The Walking Dead is a comic and television show. Um, Dustin, what are some others? Uh, there's Strong Bad's Cool Game for Attractive People. There's uh, Monkey Island, which was a game IP to begin with, but not theirs. So it was still a licensed property. Right. Um, and there was Back to the Future, which is basically Back to the Future 4. They're, they made a Jurassic Park game, a Game of Thrones game, a Guardians of the Wa Galaxy game. Wallace and Gromit. Wallace and Gromit, yeah. And they, uh, I believe the last one that they released before, um, well, I guess the last one was the final season of The Walking Dead. But right before that, the second season of their Batman game went through. Right. Um, so, so they were really all over the place. I, I think it's amazing that they got the rights to both Marvel and DC. Because very few people get both. That's like Lego and Telltale are the only people I can think of that get the rights to both of those things. Yeah, that's crazy. Those are And those are big IPs, too. Like, Batman, Guardians of the Galaxy, those those are huge, and Telltale was just able to make games for them. Yeah, I, I think everyone in the, the, the game dev world was just really impressed with what they were able to do with The Walking Dead and also how portable that formula of gameplay was to other things that everyone wanted to work with Telltale for a long time. They they were still niche within the industry. They weren't Call of Duty. They weren't World of Warcraft. They weren't, like, turning the world upside down. And they never made that much of a, like, a huge blockbuster outside of The Walking Dead. But they had a distinct fan base of people who wanted to play more narrative-driven games. And, and Telltale was kind of the only candy shop in, in town for that. 
Right. Then they didn't exist anymore. On September 21st, 2018, there was an on-hands meeting at Telltale, and the then-CEO, Pete Hawley, got everyone together and said, pretty much out of nowhere, people were not expecting it, our journey is done, you've got about 30 minutes to leave the office. And within that 30-minute time period, they went from a company that everyone thought was doing pretty all right, like, you don't get Batman and then release a Batman game and have people talk about it positively and then just die. But they did, yeah. And then at the end of that 30-minute period, Telltale Games was no longer a company. They were gone. It's crazy. They were they were here, they were huge, and then just out of nowhere. Yeah, th- there, were, there were no signs for Telltale. Um, there's a, a very well-known video games reporter named Jason Schreier who is, is known to cover the work conditions of various companies. He was covering, at the time, I remember him putting out like a Rockstar Games article, a, uh, a Naughty Dog article, talking about the work conditions of these, these giant video game companies. And it, it always felt like, oh, well, those are the monoliths in video games. You know, they, they're gonna, it's going to be hard working for them no matter when because they're like too large to fail. But I bet mm-hmm. Telltale's probably fine. The day before, there was no whispers. There was nothing. And then on September 21st, 2018, this company was gone. They just weren't here anymore. I, I don't think a lot of people talk about this in terms of the games, though. Do you know what I mean? Um, explain okay. a little. Okay, I will. (laughs) (laughs) This is obviously primarily a problem for the employees of the company. This is a really sad thing. A lot of them had just moved to the Bay Area where Telltale was because they were expanding. They were in the process of actually sort of building themselves up again after a layoff had laid off about 25% of their company a little while before, maybe like a year or two before. Uh, and, and they were on the, the way toward being big again. And then all of a sudden, you don't have a job. People are in the video games industry, which is a very specialized industry, uh, working for a company that hired a lot more writers and cinematographers than most other video game companies because they were a very specialized company even within video games. And all of a sudden, those employees just don't have anywhere to go. So that's that's heartbreaking. Some of them obviously got picked up by by other nearby video game companies and there was a team called Skunk Ape that was made out of one of the original um founders and the first CEO of the the company Dan Connors. He made Skunk Ape in order to buy back the Sam and Max games from Telltale's corpse and another company bought the name Telltale and rebranded themselves as Telltale, which is why if you look them up now, you'll see that like there is a company operating as Telltale with access to some of their older games, but that's not the same company. It's it's a different group of people. Uh, and I believe both Skunk Ape and New Telltale have hired uh, some of the old people, but definitely not all of them, because these new companies are much smaller than Telltale was as it, as at its uh, at its height. Like, there's just no way they could get all of them back together. Right. 
I was watching a no-clip documentary on their YouTube channel about the fall of Telltale, and there was this bit where Emily Grace Buck, who is the lead designer on the second episode of the fourth season of The Walking Dead, she said that the closure of everything was really weird, but her episode came out three days after the company closed, which I can't imagine being in that position. That's that's <laughs> so crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, her episode came out right after it closed, and she said in the documentary, the lack of press that that episode received was really weird. Only a few outlets even reviewed it. And then she was asked, why do you think they didn't cover it? And she said, because that wasn't the part of the telltale story that was the most interesting thing for them. And mm. that's really sad to me. That's yeah. the, the saddest thing is obviously them losing their jobs, their their livelihoods, their ability to provide for themselves within this space. A lot of them had to leave the video games industry and, and go to a go to another job type. Um, but the second saddest thing is the removal of discussion from these games, especially because New Telltale is only selling some of the old games. Uh, that Back to the Future game, you can't buy it anymore. You just can't. You can maybe find a physical version of the game, uh, but you can't download it anymore. Right. And some of the physical versions of Telltale games are problematic, actually, because you, you know how they don't have all of the episodes on them? They maybe only have the first episode, and then you download the additional episodes onto that game. Yeah, it was sold as like a season pass where the first episode would be on a disc and they would sell it to you after that first episode was out. But then you would have to download any episodes that came afterwards. So if you have one of those, you're basically screwed. Yeah, I always thought that was a bad thing. Even at the time, I remember thinking that was yeah. a bad thing. It's not a, a future proof uh, method of doing it. Yeah, I kind of understand why, from an economic perspective, you would do that because you want to have a physical version of the game on Target and Walmart and GameStop, like store, store shelves upon the initial first episode's release. So you'd yeah. want to have something that you can put there um, when the rest of the series might not have even been developed at that time. So that it makes sense, but still... Um, for there not to be a reprint after the fact with all of the episodes on the disc, it's made it really troublesome to actually play these games. Uh, so what we want to do on this podcast is play all 140 Telltale games. That's counting each episode as its own game. It's a big task, but after watching that documentary and seeing what she said about how that's just not the interesting part of game journalism outlets covering Telltale. I, I don't want the discussion of those games to be lost to time. I'm, I'm nervous about the, the process of actually playing all 140 of these games, but I'm, I'm excited for a lot of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. There's lots of them that I haven't played, and um, it'll give me a chance to play some of them, which is nice. Uh, if I can get my hands on them. This is one of those kinds of ideas where I was like, ooh, yeah, we should we should play all the Telltale games. And then I made a spreadsheet and I drafted out like, okay, how many are there? 
and I realized <laughs> what I had gotten myself into. That um, is a lot. Yeah, but I'm but I'm still excited about it. Dustin, what's your experience with Telltale Games? All right, so my experience with Telltale Games is, as a kid, I was a big fan of those LucasArts games uh, to begin with, and, you know, they had Sam and Max Hit the Road, which I was a huge fan of. Um, I was just a huge fan of Sam and Max in general. I was, I love the cartoon, I love the comics, I love that game. So I was very much looking forward to uh, the sequel that LucasArts was putting out, the Sam and Max Freelance Police. But, um, boy, as we all know, that did not go according to uh, plan. I, I specifically remember I was in high school. I was in the library in high school on one of the computers um, looking up information on it. Because I was like, oh, boy, I'm looking forward to that game. I can't wait to play a new Sam and Max game. But lo and behold, there was going to be no Sam and Max game. Is that Sam how and Max high school Freelist. Dustin talks? Yes. I cannot wait. <laughs> oh, I can feel it inside of my bones. I cannot wait for the new Sam and Max adventure program. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was greeted with uh, Sam and Max Freelance Police canceled. And yeah. I was devastated. I, I can remember it clear as day seeing it. So, uh, I was disappointed that there was going to be no Sam and Max, but, you know, later on when Telltale Games announced that they were going to be making a new Sam and Max game, uh, old Dustin's, uh, heart, uh, lit up. Um, I hadn't heard of Telltale Games before that. They had put out other games before Sam and Max. They did, uh, Bone, the Telltale Texas Hold'em, etc., which uh, I had not played, but, you know, these guys got Sam and Max. I'm 100% on board with these guys from now on. Yeah, um, that, that's interesting to me because I played a bunch of LucasArts and Humongous, which was sort of a spinoff of some of the developers of LucasArts in the 90s uh, to make adventure games that were more specifically geared toward children. I played a bunch of those growing up. Uh, Monkey Island, Sam and Max... Or sorry, Monkey Island Pajama Sam, but not, I've just, I somehow <laughs> missed Sam and Max Hit the Road. I just didn't get around to that one. I didn't, I didn't know about it. And in 2008, a couple years after Sam and Max started at Telltale, the Homestar Runner website, which is a website for an old Flash cartoon that was really popular on the internet back in the day. If you don't know about it, you should definitely check it out. It has aged weirdly well, I think. <laughs> Don't you think so? <laughs> like I was watching I think some, so. some strong bad emails uh, on their YouTube page that they have now the other day just to sort of refresh my memory of how they were. I think they're still funny. They're still good. They're still funny. Like at the time they were great and even now they're great. Like a lot of old internet cartoons from that era don't hold up very well. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, don't don't go <laughs> looking for things like Homestar Runner. It's just Homestar. Um <laughs> But at a certain point in 2008, they had an advertisement on their website saying, hey, a new, like, actual video game of this franchise is being made by Telltale, which they they cheekily referred to as the guys behind Rabidog and Bunnyman, which is <laughs> code for Sam and Max. Uh, so I went over to Telltale's website, and I saw that, like, the big thing, the, really the only thing that they had done that they were still advertising that they had done was the first two seasons of Sam and Max. Um, they had one 
episode from the first season of Sam and Max, the fourth episode where they meet Abraham Lincoln. We'll get to it in about three episodes. <laughs> uh, that episode was free. The rest of them weren't. You needed to either buy a season pass or you could... You, I think you could buy individual episodes um, even back then. Yeah, but, you could buy them uh, individually or as a whole season together, which was nice. It was a nice way of giving you that choice. Yeah, and if you bought the whole season, you you got a discount. But for the majority of like why they were selling them, they were trying to sell them as a season so they could sort of front load the the funding process for that season. Because if you just bought the first episode on its own when it came out, like that's great. You you gave back for the funding of that episode. But if you bought the season pass, then the final episodes, or like maybe if it's a five episode season, probably episodes four and five, which may not have begun being developed at that point, suddenly they got funding. So that was a that was a cool idea of, of how they can sort of build the pre-order process into their own sort of financial ecosystem. But yeah, I, I went back, I played Sam and Max before their Strong Bad game came out, and I loved it. It was great. And from that point, I was like pretty into Telltale. They, they had become one of the, the game studios that I frequented news about just to see like, oh, what are they making now? Um, but like in 2000, maybe 11 or so, so only maybe three years after that, I kind of fell out of keeping up with every Telltale game. I remember not finishing their Back to the Future game, uh, which was not because I didn't like it. I remember liking it. I just sort of forgot about it. Um, <laughs> and and now is the time where I get to finish that Back to the Future game eventually. That'll be a little bit ra- like further down the road. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even think of myself, and I, I don't know if you do either, as like a big Telltale fan or, or anything like that. I just do think of myself more like I'm I'm really preoccupied with the closing of Telltale and how that can just happen within the video game industry and it's not even particularly rare. Yeah. Um I guess I would consider myself a Telltale fan. I get I guess my thing is I didn't necessarily love Telltale for the gameplay. I I liked the gameplay, of course. I thought they were uh fun enjoyable games, but I mainly liked them more for the series they were using, the writing, like I loved Sam and Max, I loved Strong Bad, I loved Monkey Island, and more often than not, if if Telltale is working on a series that I'm not into, I probably won't play it. Yeah, that was the thing about Telltale's licensed game approach. It definitely gets more people interested in their games at first than they would have been otherwise. But by the time that they did Sam and Max and people really liked it and The Walking Dead and people really liked it and they had another like critical success, if not financial, with The Wolf Among Us, um, which was a little bit after that first season of The Walking Dead. If you liked all three of those things at any other company, that would mean that company probably has a fan in you and you'll see what they make next. Um, at right. Telltale, that's just not the point, because after that, they made Game of Thrones, and if you're not into Game of Thrones, you're just not on board. <laughs> yeah, Game of Thrones was definitely one I uh, did not choose to catch up with. I also didn't play that game, and 
I don't know why, because I actually really liked Game of Thrones um, un- until the end. But that's not... <laughs> I'm not unique for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's another one that you just can't get now. Yeah. So we're going to find out how to get them over the course of this podcast. Especially if it's legal, we'll even tell you how, listener. But <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, yeah, but if it's not, maybe we won't tell you how we do it. <laughs> Let's find out. Okay, so Sam and Max, that's what we're talking about today. This was the breakout game season for Telltale that put them, if not like on the map with the big boys, at least on the map. Season one of Sam and Max was originally just called Sam and Max Season One, which has some Pokemon the first movie energy. <laughs> where you're you're broadcasting that, yeah, no, we're gonna be successful with this enough to do a sequel. Uh, <laughs> I feel like Sam and Max is gonna be around for a long time. Yeah. Um I my favorite example of that is Doug the first movie. That's my favorite. It should have been called Doug Doug's first and last movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Broadcasting that it's the last movie may be even more presumptuous than broadcasting <laughs> that it's the first movie. Because I guess they could still make another Doug movie today. That's true. <laughs> I'm not going to, but it's possible. Um, I might. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, you're allowed. <laughs> you're allowed. I think. We'll see how that plays out. Stay tuned, everyone. Yeah, what do you have to do? Work with, uh, is it Disney that owns that? Disney owns Doug now, so I feel like it'll go pretty smoothly. <laughs> okay, so Sam and Max uh, was originally a comic by Steve Purcell. Did you read the comics? So I didn't read them as they were going. Sam and Max was, as a comic, Sam and Max started before I was born, I believe. Um, I bet that's probably true. I, I think it was. I think it was mid-80s. I want to say 86 or 87. So it wouldn't have been too long before Old Dustin came into the world, but long enough that I hadn't read them. But um, my first experience with Sam and Max was the cartoon show. That's what really got me into Sam and Max as a series. And after that, that got me looking up the comics. It got me looking up the game. And I was just flabbergasted that there was more to this series than just the cartoon. I was like, whoa, I have so much more I can experience. <laughs> uh, what would you say that cartoon was? 97? 98, I believe. 97 or 98. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to say when the the comics started, because even when they were going, they were sort of underground, and like I don't know when you would put a release date on that, really. According to Steve Purcell, he stole the characters from drawings that his brother was doing in the 70s. That's right, I forgot about that. He, uh... Yeah. <laughs> if I remember right, his brother was making Sam and Max... And then Steve Purcell would make, like, his own comics with Sam and Max kind of making fun of his brother's comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, like, his brother just drew a dog in a suit. And, like, a dog standing up, humanoid sort of thing. And a bunny named Max. So that's Sam and Max. And Steve Purcell saw, like, his unfinished comics lying around. And he'd always try to twist them and make them darker. He gave... (laughs) Like in the first panel written by his brother, they'd be like, hey, Max, what do you want to do today? And then in the second panel that that Steve Purcell would write, it'd be like, Sam takes out a gun (laughs) (laughs) and just says, I don't know. Let's 
stop all of the crime <laughs> or just, just whatever. <laughs> That's my max impression, by the way. <laughs> stop, stop all of the crime. Let's stop all of the crime today, Max or Sam. Uh, <laughs> I, I also will, over the course of this podcast, refer to it multiple times as Sam and Mask. I don't know why. I'm just bad at it. I'm bad at pronouncing it. It's just kind of this crazy thing you do. It's just a little wacky. Uh, that first game, the first Sam and Max game, was in 1993 by LucasArts. It's called Sam and Max Hit the Road. And it's about Sam and Max going on an adventure across the country they are freelance police they can be hired to solve like detective work um a bigfoot has escaped from the circus and it's their job to go find the bigfoot and they do that and it's it's great and it's fun that's a a great plot for a game yeah that's a good synopsis it's great and it's fun it should end every video game (laughs) synopsis (laughs) Unfortunately, it can't end every video game synopsis, but luckily it does for this one. Yeah, I I think something about Sam and Max's world is that because they are policemen and because they're, it's it's bright and like they're they're funny animals, but it, it's being twisted. Uh, it always feels really dirty. <laughs> you, do you feel like, that? Like you mean like grungy dirty, not like it makes you uncomfortable dirty, right? It can be both. <laughs> It, it, can, it can have both aspects to it. <laughs> um, the first season of Sam and Max seemed like a, sort of a spiritual reimagining of Sam and Max Freelance Police, which was the game LucasArts was going to make, but then canceled. It's not the first thing that Telltale made. They made Telltale Texas Hold'em. They made two episodes of a Bone game based on the comic Bone. They were probably going to do more to, fin- like adapt all of the story of bone but they didn't get around to it and they did a game based on the television show csi uh so that's fun (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but this is the first time that they really got to work back in their traditional point and click adventure world it's and it's the first time that a whole season came out and it came out as planned as promised on time and that's that that seems to have really impacted what they were able to do later so right. sam and max the the reason we're doing this game first even though it's not telltale's first game is because it um it, it really served as the blueprint for about six years of of their existence as to like what is telltale games well it's like sam and max yeah um, one thing I thought was really interesting, that canceled LucasArts sequel, Sam and Max Freelance Police, that was originally going to be episodic when it was released, is what I read. And so it's interesting that that episodic release uh, plan carried over into this new Sam and Max. I actually didn't know that. I didn't know it was going to be episodic at LucasArts. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So this game is a Sam and Max game by that team in that gameplay style. Even it is episodic like it was going to be, but it isn't the story that they were going to do because they were legally not allowed to use the same story points that they developed with LucasArts. So interesting. Right. That's too bad. I wonder if there's any details on what the story was. I'll have to look that up later. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know. Yeah, it seemed less 
conspiracy oriented than what Telltale eventually did. And we'll get into that. Right. Uh, so the game itself, Sam and Max Season 1, it was renamed to Sam and Max Save the World at some point. I think it was around 2009, because when I came into liking Telltale games, it was still Season 1. Do you have any idea why they changed the name of the game after, like three years after it came out? I'm actually not sure. Maybe it's just more marketable as a whole. Like, I thought Season 1 worked fine, but maybe just saying it's Sam and Max Save the World, just, I don't know, maybe it just unifies it all a little more. It kind of, it sells it as a full package rather than, if you sell it as something called Season 1, then it's, then it's sold as multiple episodes, you know, separate from one another. But I wonder if they just called it Save the World just because it makes it sound more like one complete whole game. Yeah, there would be three seasons of Sam and Max games, and first it was season one, and then season two, and then there was a two-year gap between seasons two and three, and in the middle of that, they changed the names of the prior two seasons, and season three was never called season three. It was only called The Devil's Playhouse. I wonder if that might be part of it, too. Maybe they had already planned to have season three have a name, The Devil's Playhouse, so because of that, they just went back and renamed uh, the first two seasons to kind of fit that naming structure. I wonder if seeing that a game is called Season 2 makes the potential buyer feel less likely that they are able to just jump in. That's a very good point as well. Yeah, because I, I bet it worked fine for Season 1 because, oh, it's the first season? Great, I'll jump in. But then if it's called Season 2, you don't think of it as its own unit that you can just go into and play through without playing the first season when in actuality I, th I think you can you can play any of these three games there is stuff that carries over the whole time but it's it's not necessarily the most important thing it's it's a, a sequel more than a continuation right exactly okay uh also we are playing the recently remastered version of sam and max save the world by skunk ape games who we talked about a little bit earlier. That remaster came out in was it November of last year of 2020 or December? I think of it was I think it was December 2nd, 2020. Thank you. Thank you for that. Or 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 December 8th. <laughs> One of the two. Okay, so a little bit of uh release information on episode 1 of Sam and Max Save the World Culture Shock. A little bit of information on Culture Shock. It originally released on October 17th. 2006 only sold on a service that i don't believe exists anymore called game tap oh boy i game never tap. used game tap <laughs> i <laughs> and hang on i want to uh, google it's google time i'm gonna find out if game tap still exists no nope. here we go everybody the wikipedia page says was so <laughs> <laughs> so there's your answer <laughs> yeah it was an online service where you could buy games um, and then it re released on the Telltale Games website about a week later. And I bought it on the website. Did you, did yeah. you buy it on the website? I, I did buy it on the website. I had an account on Telltale's website. Um, I bought everything there for a while until uh, Steam made it a little more convenient. <laughs> it received a 81, an 81 on Metacritic. That's pretty good. That's pretty good for your first episode. Yeah, and I believe... Even though I would absolutely not say that this is the best episode in the season, 
Metacritic does. That's very interesting. I had no idea. It, it's the highest rated of every episode in this season? It's the highest rated of every episode in the season, but then the season itself has a higher rating. Interesting. You, you know what? It kind of makes sense because this is the very first episode. It's kind of a new experience. I kind of, I remember thinking like, usually midway into a lot of these Telltale seasons, the scores would get a little lower because, you know, it's just kind of more of the same. Yeah. Which is fine if that's what you want, but I can I can understand why they might have reviewed a little less favorably. Yeah, because most of the innovation that you'll see within the game is going to be present in the first episode, and innovation is definitely something that video game reviewers, especially at the time, um, prized ab- above most other aspects of the game. The remastered version of the game, at least the PC version of it, got an 84% on Metacritic, Ooh. which is a little bit higher. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, so that's fun. And Good I would for them. I would definitely recommend the remastered version, by the way. We'll get into some differences between the original and the remastered later, but just generally I'll, I'll say I like it. It's yeah. Um, it definitely looks a lot prettier, um, although the style itself has not changed. Right. Culture Shock itself, the episode, was designed and written by Brendan Q. Ferguson and Dave Grossman, with special input from Steve Purcell himself. Ooh, Dave Grossman is a uh, one of the big names from the old LucasArts games. I know he and Tim Schafer are the ones who designed... Um, Day of the Tentacle? Day of the Tentacle. Uh, they helped with Ron Gilbert on the Monkey Island games. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he's he's a big one. I was sort of surprised that when Telltale founded itself and absorbed a lot of old LucasArts employees, Dave Grossman didn't just automatically become the CEO. Yeah. (laughs) He definitely seems like, I I guess maybe you wouldn't do that with a creative, and that makes sense. Um, But he seems like the guy that the the rest of the um, sort of studio is maybe based around the talents of. That's unfair, because there's a lot of people in a lot of other departments of the game making process, like outside of writing and design, like art and music, especially and, and programming. But Dave Grossman was a name that people knew. Also, Brendan yeah. Q. Ferguson, he's going to be very important later on. Um, oh. he, and he himself was a LucasArts employee as well. And then Steve Purcell originally created the comic. So that's why he's, I don't think that's why he's credited. I think he actually did have input on the game itself because he has a separate credit in the credits for creating the world of Sam and Max. Right. One thing I specifically remember he did was touching up character designs on, on like the character models. I remember seeing in a magazine before uh, this first episode came out, they had an article about it. I don't remember what magazine it was. Sorry, everyone listening. But um, we're really sorry they had about a, this. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Not remembering a magazine from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the article, they had a picture of an early character model of Max, and it had notes and revisions drawn on top of it by Steve Purcell. You know, like tightening up Max's ear placement, just uh, little notes here and there, like his mouth shape, his teeth shape. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if he even did that for characters that he didn't create, like Bosco and Sybil. Oh, you know what? I'm not sure. I, I, I remember seeing concept art for Bosco and Sybil, and I can picture them so clearly in my head, but I'm not sure if uh, Steve Purcell did them or if it was another artist at Telltale. 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing about the world of Sam and Max, because there's some things that are constant, like Sam and Max are freelance police. They live on a street called the Straight and Narrow. They have an office that doesn't look the same every time it's depicted, but it, it looks, you know, it has a vibe to it. It's very similar each time, but with its own little uh, differences. But things like side characters, antagonists, uh, the rules of the world, it can change in every adaptation of the series. One thing I think that did carry over, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I think you recently played through uh, Sam and Max Hit the Road, right? I did, yeah. Um, if I remember right, Bosco's store is in Sam and Max Hit the Road. Not Bosco himself, but you see the store on their street. You see the name of the store. It's not in the right place. Um, oh. <laughs> but you see a, <laughs> yeah, you see a store called Bosco's. You never go in it. Um, it, it's just sort of there. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, that it's, does exist. it's just kind of there for set decoration, just to flesh out the the street they're on. But it's interesting that that carried over into a major character in this Telltale series. Yeah, Bosco becomes maybe the third most important character to Sam and Max as time goes on. Is that fair? Mm, him and Sybil. Him and Sybil are, are going back and forth as the other important characters. Yes, I think I would give Sybil maybe a little bit. Of the edge over Bosco, mainly because Bosco's involvement with season three is spoilers for people who have not played these. Uh, Wait, don't. But <laughs> Wait, <laughs> Wait, that's the point of the for, show. Don't do it. <laughs> forget I said anything. No, boss. Yeah. For reasons <laughs> unknown. For reasons unknown, I will say I will I will put Sybil maybe a pinch above Bosco, but both are more or less on the same line as secondary characters in Sam and Max's world. Oh, I think I know where you were going. I don't think it's as much of a spoiler just to say Bosco doesn't appear as much later, but at least in Save the World. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As as far as season one is concerned, both he and Sybil are probably the second tier of most important characters in this Sam and Max world. And the last thing that I have to credit on my little checklist before we talk about the episode itself and the plot is that it was composed by Jared Emerson Johnson, who's just a brilliant composer. The Sam and Max games, the soundtracks from them, the Telltale ones with Jared Emerson Johnson as the composer, exceptional. They are so, so good. good. I'm I'm kicking myself that I didn't get those uh, soundtrack CDs when Telltale was selling them. Yeah, I have the soundtrack now. Um, I have <laughs> I have the soundtrack on my computer as as MP3s. If this was a computer that had a disk drive, I might even make a version for my car. Although I can't imagine driving to these songs because they're, <laughs> I would, I would like drive off the freeway. <laughs> I would just, yeah. I would not be safe, but it, it it's great. I would love the experience of dying to that soundtrack. That's a weird yeah. thing to say about it. That's I'm not cool the worst it, soundtrack to I'll, die I'll to. Maintain that premise. No, it's one of the better ones, I'd say. <laughs> Something interesting about Jared Emerson Johnson is that he's now 39, which is wow. like regular age now. But it means that when he composed Sam and Max, probably starting in 2006 or 2005, he would have been in his very early 20s. That's um, crazy. Yeah, just an, just an impressive person. That's That's one of those precocious 
youths that you hear about on the news sometimes. That <laughs> very, very impressive guy. And he goes on to compose all of the Telltale games. All of them. Every, all of them, wow. In Guardians would, of the would... Galaxy, they use some um, popular music because that's sort of their vibe that was already produced. But basically all of them, yeah. That's very interesting. I was just about to ask uh, what other Telltale games he was involved with, but wow, all of them, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and sometimes it'll be a series where there's an important other composer attached to that franchise already and they'll bring them in to work with jared emerson johnson but he'll still be on it yeah and and he's he's a chameleon too he can adapt like the soundtrack of sam and max and the soundtrack of wallace and gromit for example nothing alike <laughs> nothing alike at all <laughs> but yeah it, it, if if you haven't heard of telltale games haven't heard of sam and max don't even care about us as people the only thing to take away from this episode of this podcast you're listening to is you should probably look up the soundtrack by him. It's it's really good. Um, yeah, it'll take you a few seconds. Go look it up. <laughs> I was I was wondering what you meant at first. Like it's not it's minutes long. What are you talking about? <laughs> it takes such so little time to write his name into a YouTube search bar. At the time I played Sam and Max in high school, I'm sorry, I'm prolonging the discussion of the episode, but at the time <laughs> that I first played it, I was in a jazz band in high school, and the sound of this soundtrack actually like really impacted how I think about music at that stage of my life. So it's important That's to awesome. me. The episode. Dustin, how does it start? Uh, Sam and Max, uh, Save the World Episode 1, Culture Shock, starts with our good friends Sam and Max uh, having kind of a slow day in the office. Uh, Sam is shooting things off of Max's head, uh, just yep. passing the time by. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when they get a call on their telephone, and when they go to answer the telephone, it's nowhere to be found. Um, what? Usually their phone is able to be found, so this is out of the ordinary for Sam and Max. Um, it turns out that their phone has been taken by a rat living in their wall named Jimmy Tutti, who is extorting the freelance police in exchange for their phone. Jimmy Tooteeth, um, this horrible little rat, wants some cheese, and he wants you to be quick about it. So this leads us into our very first puzzle for Sam and Max episode, or season one. And it sort of goes through a tutorialized version of everything that you're going to be doing later in the game, where the problem is the rat doesn't have cheese, and it wants cheese in order to give you its uh, your phone back. But you have a bunch of cheese. The rat only wants Swiss cheese, which is typical, right? Uh, so Max had recently bought just a ton of cheese for no reason. Very adventure game world rules of like, no, I just bought like 30 pounds of cheese. I just thought it would come in handy. Um, it's in their closet, but it's cheddar cheese. It's blocks of cheddar cheese. You need to turn it into Swiss cheese by shooting holes in it with your gun. <laughs> perfect, perfect start to a video game. And it, it teaches you the way to interact with objects in the environment using objects in your inventory yeah one thing it also teaches you is that you might need to think a little outside the box for some of these problems like obviously yeah. it's still cheddar cheese that that's such a ridiculous 
cartoony uh, solution to this puzzle. But this straight up lets you know that that's the kind of line of thinking you're going to be need you're going to need to be doing. We, you and I were actually talking about this a little bit before. I played this when I was like 14. Mm. I don't know how many other 14 year olds and the game did seem like it was sort of marketed like at teens and, and maybe older tweens or something. Yeah. I don't know how many of them would have thought, oh, Swiss cheese? Well, I got to get holes in it. Like, I, I don't know if that association is, is that young of an idea, but what, what yeah, do you think it's, about that? Yeah, it's, it's weird to think about. Like, I remember getting it, but um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Like, nowadays I've played through this uh, multiple times, so it's such an obvious puzzle but i don't know how someone coming to this for the first time i i guess it kind of makes sense like it kind of eases you into it because you have the cheese it kind of hints to you that this you're on the right track with this puzzle and you have your gun in your inventory um a gun can make holes in cheese it can but apparently yeah yeah i don't try it in real life people but um just take their word for it that it can be done this would have been way too niche for them but i would have loved mythbusters to take on the opening of this game and try to see if they can like actually shoot a bunch of holes through cheese um from a distance (laughs) (laughs) i promise we won't spend this much time on every puzzle in the game it's just the first one so it's it's important um, and then you give him the cheese, and then Jimmy Two Teeth says that the deal's been altered. Now he wants even more cheese, and Sam and Max are not having that at all. Even though they did have an entire rest of their closet full of cheese that they just shuttles in, <laughs> they could have just given him more cheese. It would have been fine. Um, but, but where does the cheese stop? He wants this much <laughs> cheese. What's stopping him from wanting more afterwards? That's true. If you give a moose a muffin, you know. <laughs> Uh, And then that leads into basically the second tutorial of the game, which is the dialogue tree puzzle, where you're interrogating Jimmy Two Teeth. Um, Sam is sort of acting as good cop, trying to make sure Jimmy's comfortable. Max is about to kill him in like a thousand different ways. (laughs) Uh, Right before the puzzle, Max says, what if I just open your rib cage and see if the phone's in there? And Jimmy Two Teeth is like, eh, I don't believe you're going to do it. I don't know why he doesn't think Max is going to do it. Max is the kind of person that does these things. <laughs> I wouldn't have called I, him out on that. <laughs> that seems like a bad call. Yeah, Jimmy Two Teeth is uh, pretty hardcore. He He's lived in Sam and Max's wall. I'm, I'm sure he's familiar enough with Max and the things he would do. So but, Sam, uh, he does not budge. No, that he doesn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Sam tries to make him more comfortable, asking what he needs. And Jimmy Two Teeth says, "Actually, yeah, you're putting me on this desk. I'm, it's pretty high up for me. I don't really like heights." And then Max says, "Oh, you don't like heights? What if I dangle you out the window?" And then he does. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> from just being scared of that situation enough, he spits up the phone. And it turns out that Jimmy Two Teeth actually did swallow the phone. It is far too big for him to actually have done this, but this is a cartoony thing for a cartoony game. What I really like about that bit is even if it's just like a simple little thing, there was foreshadowing at the beginning of like, what if I rip open your ribcage and see if it's in there? It would have been. <laughs> like, he, Max was correct about that. Uh, and it didn't seem like he would have been, but it was it, it's just a little clever writing thing. <laughs> 
one thing I really like about this puzzle as well. Um, so these dialogue tree based puzzles you're doing, you basically need to find the right things to say in order to progress the scene. But even if you don't, every single line is very funny, very well written. So even if you're not any closer to solving the puzzle, making no progress, you still get some very funny lines. You you do, yeah. And that's sort of the telltale LucasArts stamp on it, that even if you do something that doesn't lead you anywhere closer to the end of the game, um, they'll reward you with a little joke here and there. It's These are very full adventure games. Even, if, even the episode structure, which results in individual Sam and Max games under Telltale being like three hours at most, uh, which is very short for a video game. There, there's always so many extra little things on the sides that you can see and they're funny and it's it, a company that makes video games that specializes in comedy is rare that doesn't actually happen very often at all right and if they do it's even rarer that it actually works it actually carries over that's true. Video games are very bad at comedy in general, I would argue. <laughs> um, there's there's some good examples that um, disprove that, but I think on the whole, there's work to be done in that world. <laughs> uh, so you get the phone, and the commissioner says there's reports of malfeasance at the local corner shop, to which Max replies, that's my second favorite feasance, which is a good line. And then you go down to the corner shop. What happens there? So you go down to the corner shop, uh, Bosco's Inconvenience. You walk into the shop and you meet uh, the proprietor of this establishment, Bosco himself, the legendary Bosco, who was hinted at in Sam and Max Hit the Road. Bosco is... He's very paranoid. (laughs) Not just about what's going on right now, Honestly, I feel like he probably has a right to be paranoid about what's going on. But just in general, that's that's just who he is as a personality. Yeah, that's that's sort of his sort of not a catchphrase, it, but his his It's just kind trait. of his thing. It's, it's just kind of his deal. It's just kind of his thing. Yeah, he uh he's he's a very conspiracy theorist oriented person. We should talk for a second about Bosco. Yes, let's talk about our friend Bosco. So, first off, clarification. Both Dustin and myself are white men living in America in our early years. That's true. Which means that we don't really have much of a leg to stand on talking about any kind of racial anything. (laughs) Yeah. But we're talking about Sam and Max, so we got to talk about Bosco. He's a black man who originally was voiced by a white actor who uh, really does a very tropey voice. Um, think think about the, the sort of gruff growl that Fat Albert might be known for a little bit. It's that kind of voice, but even more urban somehow. Right. And like, you know, obviously I, I give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm pretty sure this, you know... It's no, not any malicious reason that he's uh, voiced by a white guy in the original game. No, in, in, in fact, th- this is 2006. It doesn't make it more or less okay because it was a different time. But that idea of, especially within the world of voice acting, that that might not be a good thing has not really been popularized at that point. 
So what Skunk Ape did for the remaster is they kept all the old voice lines for every character except Bosco, who they had redone by a black voice actor. And there were a couple lines that they were like no longer happy with across the whole season one. Bosco has probably thousands of lines. Mm -hmm. And I think the number of lines that they changed anything on was 12 out of that large, large amount. Yeah, that's why I didn't don't necessarily have a problem with them removing lines. I, I've seen some people who are upset about it, but I don't see it as that much of a problem because for every line that's cut, you get so many other lines that are still there that are still very funny. So personally, I didn't miss any cut lines. I didn't miss them too much. I didn't notice them. I definitely didn't remember the exact script of the game well enough yeah. to have noticed it on this time but um yeah i it's i think it's something that you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't um i really respect skunk skunk apes uh decision to sort of hold themselves to a higher moral authority on it this time around and these are the people that did originally work on the game so they're not even censoring anyone else's work they're working on their own work right yeah uh, although I don't think the writers, both Dave Grossman and Brendan Q. Ferguson are not at Skunk Ape, but I, I don't really think that should matter. It's something that makes sense. And the original version of the game, as it was for preservation purposes, is downloadable if you have the Steam or GOG.com version of the remaster as DLC. So you can just have the original game exactly as it was, exactly as potentially racist or not racist if that is your view of it as it was in the past right i think that's a very good way to go about it i think that's a way that uh pleases everyone there was some debate online about like well it, it's not preservation if you keep the voice but like my perspective is it it's not reservation if you remaster it <laughs> like if it's different at right. all it's not preservation so that that ship sailed way long ago um <laughs> And and if you want real preservation, it exists in a different form than the remaster. So that that is fine. Other yeah. Telltale games really do need that remastering, though. Oh yeah. Okay, so that's that's Bosco. That's the whole thing. I'm I would have made that decision. I think I I think I would have made that decision if I were remastering the game. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the problem at Bosco's is that this old child star that Max recognizes named Wizard from the 1970s fictional television show More Than Jerks where three kids like soda? Is that the <laughs> plot of the show? That they just like soda? I guess. They never really talk about it. <laughs> so they never tell you what exactly their show was. I guess in my head I kind of imagined it as kind of like a Mickey Mouse Club sort of show. Yeah. So so not really like a, a sitcom, but more like skits starring these kids, I guess? Yeah, that makes some sense. Uh, <laughs> there's three of them. There's Little Peepers, there's Specs, and there's Wizard. And they each have their own catchphrase related to soda. They're called the Soda Poppers. And their TV show was called More Than Jerks. I don't know why their TV show was called More Than Jerks when... Uh, <laughs> They're already called the Soda Poppers. That should be the name of the show. Well, it's because um, they use 
back then, I believe a a soda jerk was um uh stalling so I can look it up on Google. Is that real? Is that is this a thing that soda jerks a, is a thing to say? A soda jerk is a person, typically a youth, who operates the soda fountain in a drugstore, often for the purpose of preparing and serving soda. Soda okay. drinks and ice cream drinks. So, yeah, that's why it's called More Than Jerks, is because they were soda jerks. Great. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. But but I what didn't... makes it very clever is the fact that um, jerks can also be used to describe a person as well. That is very clever. Um, <laughs> Mitch, how do you feel about the soda poppers? <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty good, huh? I like that I don't like them. Exactly. That's 100% <laughs> the best way to describe it. You're not supposed to like these guys. They're horrible little gremlins. They're the worst. <laughs> they yeah, the worst they're people. awful. They're <laughs> they're unlikable. They're um, ugly as shit. But that's okay because you're. that's the point. Uh, and I love them because you're not supposed to like them. Yeah, even though this is a 2000s video game based on a 1980s comic... Um, there's something very 1990s about just the idea of making characters just as ugly as possible and, <laughs> and like not liking them and then putting them in your video game. That's a very 90s idea. And I like it because that's where my heart lies in the time spectrum. Um, Wizards bringing in videotapes that Bosco did not order. And that's why he called the cops. Right, and I don't think he's wrong for thinking this. He didn't order these videos. This is very weird, and uh, Wizard just keeps bringing in more and more of these videos. Yeah, something that we talked about in the past is, like, how illegal is this? Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you're just running a store, and then someone says, got those videos you ordered, and you go, I didn't. And he goes, that's fine. And then you start stacking them up in the corner of your store. Yeah, I guess I guess it's technically not illegal, but it's also maybe not something good either. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's. I mean, like loitering is illegal. Um, yeah, in for some reason, and I guess it's that because you're not buying anything mm-hmm. at this establishment, right? But uh, these videos that Wizard is dropping off are Brady Culture's Ibo. Vaguely described as uh, giving your eyes the workout they need. Yeah, it, it's sort of referencing the the older, uh, maybe late nineties to early two thousands exercise tape craze uh, <laughs> that existed. That I'm pretty sure existed. Now that I think about it, I think it existed. <laughs> Um, exercise tape craze is a very funny phrase it was a thing i remember a lot of just exercise tapes ending up in our house somehow of oh definitely no definitely i remember seeing like uh ads to buy them on tv it's just a funny thing to think about nowadays (laughs) people were crazy about it (laughs) people loved them they couldn't get enough at this point you probably don't really know who brady culture is and you don't care about these videos at all um but you you think that wizard's acting weird it's more weird than normal Uh, another thing about the soda poppers is that they all have like weird quirks 
Peepers has giant eyes, as is somehow <laughs> related to soda. Specs, I guess, could be described as being anal retentive in some way, of, of just like, he, he needs to make everything really perfect, and uh, his catchphrase is, you made me mess up. And <laughs> What Wiz- a good catchphrase. It's a great catchphrase. Uh, and Wizards is timeout for number one, which he says every time he goes pee, which is about once every five minutes at most. Yeah, Wizards' whole thing is he he makes wee wee very often. That is that is his whole thing, um, <laughs> and you can tell that Wizards acting really weird. And then if you go outside, there's Specs spray painting a picture of Brady Culture's face on a wall, which is uh, weird. So he's around too. And if you go down the street on the other side to Sybils, which is this corner it looks like a corner uh it doesn't look like a shop it's not selling anything but you might see i don't know just a corner what would you call that um it's not an office i guess it's an office maybe i mean sybil has her desk in there i guess i'd call it an office okay yeah you go in there and you see peepers and peepers is saying that he's sybil and that uh, he is acting as a psychiatrist, which is what Sybil is currently doing. But then you hear someone screaming in the closet, you open the door, and then Sybil, the actual person who is a woman and not a small boy, uh, (laughs) comes out. And she's like, (laughs) Peepers kidnapped me and tied me up and put me in the closet. And Peepers like, no, I'm Sybil. Uh, (laughs) And you talk to Sybil, and she posits that the soda poppers are being hypnotized so if you go around you hit them all on the head which is hard to do they all involve little puzzles of how to hit these soda poppers on the head you can unhypnotize them it we're sort of skipping ahead a little bit but it turns out that they were hypnotized by brady culture in the videos if you watch the video you get hypnotized right and you kind of learn over the course of this that All of this is tied into uh, the soda poppers trying to get more people hypnotized with these Ibo tapes. Peepers is recommending them to people, to anyone who comes in for uh, their psychotherapy session. Specs isn't really doing much besides (laughs) spray painting. But well, well, he is spray painting Brady Culture's image across town. Yeah, he's spray painted it on the building in which Sam and Max work, which I think is the only reason they care, because they wouldn't care about a graffiti <laughs> artist otherwise. Right. So you kind of learn over the course of this that all three of these soda poppers are hypnotized into doing this, presumably by the man himself, Brady Culture, who you have not yet met, but... Given the fact that all three of these soda poppers seem pretty obsessed with this guy, it's a fair assumption to make. Something that I think is worth bringing up here is that this is a crime thing that Sam and Max are trying to solve. But as police, there's like a weird, there's a weird thing about how they are presented as police. Because occasionally Sam says, well, you're under arrest, and it never goes down. Like, (laughs) you actually can't arrest anyone throughout the entirety of these games it never happens they allude to maybe it being possible but like (laughs) it's never happened in the game 
Yeah, I, I never thought about that, how they never actually arrest everyone. Sam often says you're under arrest to people, and it never it never happens. Never happens. I, I think that's worth bringing up in the, in the realm of politics around police, because it's definitely a very different world around policemen right now than it was in 2006. Right. At the time... The idea that Sam and Max were freelance police was probably just a joke in and of itself. Like, oh, can you imagine these crazy people being police? They're so violent. Uh, how nutty. How nutty that you would have, like, people just beating people up and and uh, arresting people willy-nilly. And then now it's like, yeah, no, actually, though. <laughs> uh, interesting that you would think that. <laughs> and I Yeah. I, I was wondering how I'd feel going back to this game, especially with just m- modern sensibilities revolving around police officers. And I, I was interested to find that the game reads much more like criticism of police work than endorsements of it now. And I don't know if that was the original intention. And in fact, I don't think that it was. But it feels that way now. Kind of. The way I always read into Sam and Max's actions is they are not tied to an actual police force. Right. They, they're they kind of their own thing. They're their own brand freelance. of... Uh, yeah, exactly. Freelance police. They can do whatever they want. Which often means taking uh, taking it up, dialing it up to 11. They just carry their guns around with them wherever and uh, pull them on whatever they need. Uh, such as cheese. Mm-hmm. They do not hold back on using force. Uh, when you compare it to uh, things nowadays, it's... Eh. I, I, I feel like Sam and Max still take it to a cartoonishly ridiculous degree to the point where it's still funny, especially for these characters who are shown to be... You know, they they still want to uphold the law. They still want to do good at the end of the day. Their methods are off kilter. Yeah, um, I guess. But I would I would still consider Sam and Max to be good people for the most part. In the process of dehypnotizing one of the soda poppers, you need to purchase a tear gas grenade launcher from Bosco. It costs ten thousand dollars. <laughs> you definitely don't have that. And Sam and Max's immediate thought is, oh, man, I don't have that much money. Wait, we can just give someone a ticket. And, <laughs> and uh, at first, I was like, oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> that's like a that's a really <laughs> shitty thing to do. Um, but Sam and, and Max are talking about it, like, oh, where should we go? And Sam says, white-collar business crime drive, <laughs> which is where all of the tax evaders and actual criminals who do do bad things um, but are protected by a certain amount of privilege, live. And you can pull them over, uh, you can shoot out their taillights, and then give them a ticket for not having taillights. And I guess you can feel good about that, because they deserved it <laughs> in other areas of their life. Um, yeah. Very like, interesting politics, one... this game. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's one thing I'll say about Sam and Max, is at least usually... Um, they are not hard on people who don't deserve it. Uh, I say usually because a lot of the times in their puzzles, it usually kind of involves screwing over someone who maybe doesn't deserve it. But 
but not on you know, purpose the- usually like that's that's yeah. often a punchline of like oh i didn't think that would be a result of this weird chain reaction or something like that yeah exactly yeah it, it, it's interesting to have a game that existed in 2006 when I think the attitude around police officers was largely positive by the public. I mean, Telltale, outside of this, remember, they made a CSI game, which is yeah. just straight up, that's regular police work. That's that's not even cartoonish, comedic at all. And, and now it's remastered at the end of 2020, uh, where we had a very interesting year in regards to the public's relationship, especially in America, with police. And... Uh, it kind of works both times. I, I think it's yeah. an impressive game that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would never actually like Sam and Max as people. I, <laughs> you would say you should not be police officers. I don't think you can. I don't think freelance police is a thing. And also, I don't think you can just do that. I don't. I, I don't think you have the power to pull someone over and give them a million dollar ticket. You should fire your gun at least ninety percent less often. <laughs> <laughs> But in the context of these games, maybe not liking them entirely is kind of the point. Um, And and seeing how they go through these struggles of trying to solve what Brady Culture, an actually bad person, is doing is is interesting in and of itself. As the series goes on, I think I might want to touch more on that specific angle of Sam and Max being police officers and what that really means in terms of this game. Um, but for now, we'll just say that they do seem to genuinely want to do good. Right. Like, usually the people they're going up against are villains, are bad people. Yeah, and even even if someone was less than innocent, Sam and Max are not the kind of police officers to just arrest someone. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they really are not good at it. <laughs> And, yeah, and, uh, I, I guess seem that to want that to very often. Yeah, I guess that kind of helps too. Is uh, their results are uh, mixed. Yeah, they try to arrest Wizard at first when uh, when he's dropping off the videotapes, and Wizard says, "No, nah, I can't be arrested right now. I'm busy." And Sam's like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to say to that." You're right. <laughs> But I don't think Sam and Max ever would have arrested Wizard for that if it weren't for the fact that Bosco was asking for help. Right. As a, as a local small business owner. Right. They're trying to help Bosco out here. It, it sort of maybe opens a little bit of the question of like, what is the difference between the police system being bad and individual police being bad? And some people don't believe that the second even matters, maybe. And yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Um, but that is about the end of how relevant them being policemen is to this story. Because after this, you go to a theater, an old theater that Brady <laughs> Culture has retrofitted into being Brady Culture's home for former child stars and sufferers of alternative personality disorder, which he has insisted the soda poppers had in order to get their support. What do you think about that? That's a whole can of worms. <laughs> it is we were talking we said it before uh brady culture not not my most favorite character design out there it's very off-putting 
I do not like Brady culture, but that's the point. So it's technically a very, very good character design because they got what they wanted across, but I do not like looking at him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that he's an ugly design on purpose like the soda poppers. But he's just sort of like a like a greasy guy. <laughs> so like he he's not the kind of person you would really want to associate with much. Mainly because he's uh, hypnotizing people. Yeah, no, he's he's a criminal and doing bad things. But also, yeah. he he like the soda poppers had a TV show called Culture's Clubhouse back in the seventies. I believe it. They said it was canceled in the middle of the first episode. <laughs> yeah, was. So it was because his show and the Soda Poppers show, More Than Jerks, aired at the exact same time slot. And uh, the Soda Poppers just kind of had that, they had that flair that old Brady culture just uh, didn't have. It's, it's a, you hear that story time and time again. Yeah. It's a tragic one. So Brady culture kidnaps the Soda Poppers, convinces they have alternative personality disorder, which I think is very sad because that implies that the Soda Poppers were in a rough state enough mentally that they could be told, oh, that's the thing that's wrong with me. That makes sense. Uh, And they were taken advantage (laughs) of by Brady culture. Uh, So Brady culture hypnotizes Sam. You go into Sam's dream world and you try to kill Brady culture from inside your dream world. You do it. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into the context of how that works. That's that's just a whole smorgasbord of little puzzles. Uh, we can get into it a little bit. It, it's it's a big part of the game. Okay. So uh, Sam gets hypnotized by Mr. Brady Culture. Uh, Max is immune to it for some reason. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Max doesn't have much of a... Well, we will go inside Max's head later in the series, so we'll get to it. Yeah. So Sam is hypnotized and Brady culture makes him start delivering videos. You go into Sam's head to try to snap him out of this hypnotic state, but things are a little off in, uh, so Sam's hypnotic dream is the Sam and Max office, but Brady culture is everywhere. Brady culture has invaded his thoughts. Uh, his good friend Max inside of his, uh, hypnotic dream state has Brady Culture's face. There's Brady Culture in the lights. Brady Culture's everywhere. And so, in order to snap Sam out of this, you have to destroy the intruder in your mind. Right, that is how it is phrased. So that intruder, in this case, is Brady Culture, who takes the form of a lot of different objects in Sam and Max's office, which represents the subconscious of Sam's mind for some reason. Uh, he takes the form of all the cheese in the closet and the bulb and the light bulb and the screen on the television. And Max's body is there, but his head is Brady Culture's head. And Max's <laughs> head has floated like a balloon to the ceiling. And you need to kill all of these instances of Brady Culture somehow. Side note, this is a moment in the remaster that really shines because of the lighting they're able to do for the dream it- sequences. It looks so good in the remaster. I, I love cool. this part. Yeah, I, I yeah. looked up what it looked like in the original game. Uh, it, it is it is not nearly as uh, immersively interesting in terms of the, the lighting tricks they're able to pull off. Right. It 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 looks. It's they're doing the same thing with it in the remaster. It's just the lighting is just crazy better. <laughs> So most of these instances of Brady culture are easily defeatable. For the one on the television, just remove the uh, the antenna. Again, something I don't know if kids know about. 
antennas on TVs. Yeah, that it would just stop working if you take the coat hanger off of the TV. Yeah, that is interesting. I That's like such a so far removed thing nowadays. Yeah, it it is. But also, like I was born in 1994, which is well after like record players already fell to cassettes and the the beginning of CDs. So I still know about record players and I've known about them my whole life. So maybe they mm-hmm. maybe kids would know about coat hangers on televisions and what they do. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I don't want to dismiss the ability of kids to pick things up via context clues. Yeah, sorry, kids. Yeah, no, kids, you're better than us, probably. Yeah, you're all right. I don't want to start the fight. Kids seem mean online about the fight, about the <laughs> ages. Have you seen any of that? They'll come for us. They really will. If we go for them. <laughs> no, you're better. And you you look great today, kids. Uh, yeah, please leave us alone. I like what you've done with your hair. I With the middle part, it looks great. And and then like the bulb that Bla- Bra- uh, Brady Culture poses as, if you just turn the light switch off, he dies. So that's easy. And then all the cheese in the closet. Obviously, you get a bike pump and pump up Jimmy Two Teeth, the rat, so that he's very large, so that he may consume all of the cheese in one go. Obviously, that's how that works. Obviously, yeah. What else would you possibly what, do? What else would you do? Like that. Um, the last one, with the one where Brady Coulter's head is on Max's body, deserves, I think, a little more focus. Um, <laughs> because what you do is there's a one-way street sign on the wall. If you flip it over, the gravity changes so that you go to the ceiling. And if you haven't seen this part of the game and you're just listening to us explain it i don't know if you'll get it i don't know if i can do a good enough job of explaining how this works but if you flip the street sign you go to the ceiling and then it flips back and because max's head floats it goes down to the ground when you do that and then it flips back what you have to do is stand exactly under max's head and then shoot the one-way sign with your gun so it flips without you having to stand next to it and as Max's head falls, you can catch it. Then you put Max's head on Brady Culture's head, which is on Max's body, and Max's head eats Brady Culture's head, and they show the <laughs> whole thing, and it's wild. It's wild that this is in the game. Yeah, you don't see a whole lot of head eating in video games these days. <laughs> <laughs> they don't make them how they used to, Dustin. <laughs> it was a different time. Back in my day, just heads were eating other heads all the time. <laughs> uh, so that's that's how you solve that instance of hypnosis. And then um, Sam is unhypnotized, but Max is still tied up at the the um, theater. So you go to the theater, you see Brady Culture. Um, he has hypnotized the soda poppers against you. And what you're able to do is to say... It, it, it's an it's another text option, dialogue option puzzle, like the one in the beginning with interrogating Jimmy Two Teeth. You say, worship me, and then the soda poppers come over to, to worship you, and then Brady Culture says, no, 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 worship me. And then you say, attack me, and Brady Culture says, no, 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 attack me, wait. And then the soda poppers <laughs> attack him. A, a, a real rabbit season, duck season sort of scenario. Yeah, again, following that cartoony logic, that kind of cartoony logic that came from shooting the holes in the cheese, it carries over throughout the episode. 
up to uh, defeating Brady Culture himself. Yeah, that that's true. I, I haven't thought about that ending as a specifically very cartoony thing, but it yeah, it's Looney Tunes for sure. <laughs> and that that's the last puzzle in the game. Sam and Max walk out of the theater after seeing the soda poppers brutally attack Brady Culture. And they're like, yeah, we did a good job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but then there's a TV nearby and it shows a talk show with a host named Myra. And her guest says, love the show, Myra. It's like I can't stop watching. And then his eyes look all hypnotized. So you're, you're given the the hint that um, th- there, there's more hypnosis situations to be dealt with later in the next episode and then credits roll and that's the episode what do you think of this episode the episode i i thought it was a very good start so before playing this season again for the longest time i remembered thinking season one of sam and max was not that good i mean it was good but like i remember thinking oh it was their first game the writing's not as good as it is later uh, the puzzles are pretty basic, but no, going back and replaying it, they're just firing on all cylinders from the get-go. Every episode is very funny, and the puzzles do keep you on your toes here and there. Um, one thing I really like about this is how it expands on Sam and Max's world, because Sam and Max, outside of the Telltale games, don't have a huge supporting cast. In the comics, there was maybe... There was the commissioner and no one really else. In the comics, there, there, there was characters. a character named Salmon Mac, who was <laughs> a goldfish in a bull wearing a, like a suit. Right. Oh, uh, Mac Salmon. Is his name Mac Salmon? His name is Mac Salmon. And I remember oh, that okay. because he was in, he was in the cartoon. Oh, was he? Okay. So that's a recur recurring character. I wonder yeah, why Telltale cartoon- never used him. Yeah, the, that is interesting since he was a major character in the series. Uh, and then the cartoon had some. They invented, like, the geek. They had uh, some other mm-hmm. characters here and there. But, you know, not really that many. And then I like that the Telltale games established Bosco and Sybil as reoccurring characters that keep showing up every episode. And they're great. I love both Bosco and Sybil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they each kind of have their thing. Bosco in every episode. Uh, Bosco actually has two things. One, he's in a different disguise in every episode, uh, trying to lay low uh, for whatever conspiracies going going around in his head. But he also has uh, some sort of secret device for you that will help you in your little quest, your little mission, your little adventure. Um, that he sells to you for huge sums of money. Yeah, just just a ridiculous amount of money every time. Right. And uh, Sybil always has a different occupation every episode that usually ties into what you're doing in that episode, which is not, it gives you a reason to want to talk to them every episode. They really lend themselves very well to this episodic uh, format. Yeah, uh, it, it seems like Telltale went out of their way to sort of reboot the world of Sam and Max in order for it to be a game that they can be known for primarily rather than it being attached to the comics or the cartoon or the original LucasArts game. Uh, Although out of all of them, it definitely pulls the most from that LucasArts game. Specifically at one point in that game, Sam and Max get the 
disembodied hand of Jesse James. You just find it <laughs> around. It's just a thing you can have. And in the Telltale games, just as a reference to Hit the Road, you do see that they have mounted Jesse James's hand on the wall above their closet in the office, which is basically the only reference that they can get away with sort of logically connecting the actual plots of the games, except for the name Bosco. Right. There, there's a couple things here and there later down the line, but um, at, for right now, that is really the only connection. But it's it's enough of a connection. Yeah. I think that is, that's a big, uh, very memorable item that does kind of let you know, yes, this is technically picking up from that first LucasArts game. It at least proves that that world is the same, that it's not actually yeah. a reboot, even though it, it has a very different feel that hit the road is very wacky it plays on a lot of tropes of americana like tourist traps that that's sort of what its theme is and the the telltale sam and max games are all 1940s 1950s film noir that's the style they go for if you play right. these games you will be watching your own sort of film noir adventure thing yeah but yeah that that's what i thought about episode 1 it's a great way to um start things out uh humor is on point right from the get-go i think one thing uh we didn't bring up is the voice actors for sam and max especially max (laughs) which is interesting in this episode yeah only Um, this episode i think one more episode have this voice actor for max right it's just this episode episode two and onward he's voiced by really um, only this one yeah yeah only this one um in this one he's voiced by um Andrew Chaikin, Andrew Chaikin, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Um but yeah, he voiced him in this first episode only and I believe he would stick around. Like he still voices some characters later on huh in the series, but here he is voicing Max. Yeah, I don't I don't know what's up with that. Especially in the remaster, you'd think that well, if they're going to do Bosco for the reasons they're doing Bosco, you might as well unify all of the Max voice acting in the season. And they didn't do that. Yeah, I I wonder why. That That's interesting. I never thought about that. I, I wonder if the original, well, the original second voice actor that they had for Max, <laughs> I wonder if he, maybe it's just been too long and he wouldn't sound like the Max in the other episodes, so maybe it wouldn't have been worth it. But Well, it's interesting that you say that. I totally forgot about this, but Max was recast near the end of the line for telltale in uh poker night two uh well first i'll start out by saying after andrew chaikin in episode two max was recast as william caston who uh portrayed max for the rest of the telltale salmon max series up until poker night two where we he was recast with uh dave boat huh dave boat that's a good name that's a fun name sorry sorry guy for just laughing at your names exist that's not nice of me but yeah we're we're laughing because we enjoy it so much that is that that is exactly true i love that name yeah we're not laughing at it because it's a stupid bad name we're laughing at it because it's a great name but david boat um sounds just like william caston i didn't even notice he was recast in poker night 2 
But yeah, I wonder if that might be a reason why they didn't re-record is even down the line, he is no longer voicing Max. Even in um, that new VR game they're doing for Sam and Max, it's Dave Boat rather than William Caston. Interesting. I didn't know that. Okay, so I guess in that case, it doesn't make sense to replace Chaken with Boat when neither (laughs) of them are the one that sounds are the one that plays max later so that makes sense yeah. i guess you wouldn't do that my favorite max voice out of all of them is definitely uh in, including the voice in hit the road and including the cartoon is definitely um Kasten. Kasten's great i think since he's the one who stuck with the role the longest it definitely feels the most like max uh my favorites are the cartoon voices just because I think they each give them such an entirely different sort of energy than they have in and everything else. Uh, their actors in the cartoon give them this almost giddy sounding energy to them that really has a very funny contrast with the kinds of lines they're saying. Yeah, the voice actors in the cartoon aren't the same ones in Hit the Road, but they're basing their performance sort of on the ones in in Hit the Road. And in Hit the Road, Sam is played by Bill Farmer, who is Goofy. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. He plays Goofy. And Max is voiced by Nick Jameson in in Hit the Road, who I'm, I'm not sure a lot of voices he's done, but he has done a lot of voices for, uh... LucasArts. I I believe he did multiple voices in Day of the Tentacle, for example. Oh, interesting. Okay. I I love the... I I think the Max voices I I can be persuaded on, but the Telltale Sam is easily my favorite Sam. (laughs) He goes really film noir, detective, hard-boiled detective sort of thing. Uh, A real gumshoes, a New York gumshoes is what he's like. Yeah. And uh, Sam's voice actor, David Nolan, um, he is Sam throughout the whole series and even now in the new projects they're doing, uh, which is great because he does do a great job. However, I do think he gets better over time. I think in this first episode, I'm not super into his performance. He's he's played maybe a little too... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A little too quiet, a little too soft. Okay. Um, yeah. But over time, like, even just across this first season, he he just nails it by the end. He picks, he improves so fast. I think that not just the voice acting, but the writing and portrayal of the character in general of Sam in this episode is, Sam is the character you actually play as. You, If you're walking around, you're walking around as Sam, and Max is like a helper. Mm-hmm. In the story, they have equal billing, but in terms of what you're actually doing as the player, you are Sam, not Max. And I think that this episode's portrayal of Sam sort of leans hard on the idea of Sam is the straight man, and then Max is this wacky, hyper-violent rabbit thing on that hangs out with him. Mm-hmm. Whereas later in the Telltale series, and especially early like in the, in the cartoons, Sam's not the straight man. <laughs> like he's he's just also weird. He's definitely less out there than Max. They're just different brands of weirdness. Yeah, he he's weird in the way that is relatable and maybe more relaxed is is what you can say. He's not hyperactive. He's not very very uh high energy a lot of the time. But he's still like 
he's still got his gun out shooting everything all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, that's still him. So in in that way, I think maybe this episode like makes him too straight, a little too dry, and that picks up later in the sh- in the uh, series and season. Right, right. And it's when you play all these episodes together, like in this remaster, it is very cool to see to hear that performance pick up to hear him improve as it goes along. I think that's very cool. Nowadays, I wouldn't want anyone else voicing Sam. He just nails it. Oh yeah, I, I think he's the the forever voice over guy for sam yeah much like martinet is for mario like you, <laughs> you you just don't change that at this point exactly how did you feel about this first episode mitch i've been going on and on about how i feel about this episode but you know i'm, I'm gonna show a little <laughs> compassion how did you feel about it <laughs> thank you for that compassion um i i thought it was good but the job of a first episode of something is unfair and difficult because it needs to get the entire audience to care about further episodes, even though later on you obviously get to do cooler, more interesting things because the characters are more developed mm-hmm. and you don't have a lot of exposition right at the front like you do with this episode. I think it maybe doesn't do the job as well as I would like it to of like getting you really invested in this version of the world making you say like oh i really want to find out what happens next if my memory serves me correctly they kind of have a hard go of it until episode four of this season uh in in that sort of realm in in terms of getting the player to get be like really interested in what happens next and interested in the next episode that said it was good It, it was i even liked it more than hit the road my my personal opinion on the Sam and Max games is there's hit the road and then three telltale seasons and I think just every one of those four things just gets better it 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 was good when they when LucasArts did hit the road and then save the world is better than that and then season two which is called beyond time and space uh, is better than that and I think the devil's playhouse season three is the best I, it gets really, really good as time goes on. And there, there's some hints of where they're going already, but um, when, when Skunk Ape announced that they were remastering season one, I was at first like, oh yeah, I love that. I, I love Sam and Max from Telltale. That's awesome. I want to play that again. And then I remembered like, oh, season one? Yeah, I kind of like that one a little less than what comes later. That, but that's but ex- it's, it's cool. Yeah, that's exactly where I was. I remembered thinking season one was not as good. and And that is... The case it does pick up as it goes, but I f- I feel like I was giving season one a little less credit than I should have because playing it now, I I liked it a lot more than I thought I did. Yeah, there's there's also some interesting story structure things where you go to Sam's dream twice. <laughs> uh, you do it once when Sybil is analyzing your dream to find out if you have alternative personality disorder and then you do it again when you're hypnotized and like it looks different and it feels different even though you'd think that if a story is taking you to the same place twice it should probably do it with the purpose of comparing the two times you go and it kind of doesn't and i I, it's that kind of thing that they just get better and better at as they go on according to my memory so i'm excited to see that 
improve as time goes on. Right. Stuff like that is understandable since it is their first Sam and Max episode. They're still kind of feeling out what they're doing with the puzzles. Uh, so you, you, you can kind of let it slide a little bit, but that is an interesting yeah. point. I hadn't, uh, I, I had totally spaced that you go into Sam's dream twice in this episode and, and you never do time... again in the entire series. So like, that's a weird thing to do twice. <laughs> yeah. And both times you do it twice, the gameplay is different. Like what you're doing, you don't go in Sam's dream once. And that kind of teaches you what you'll need to do in the second part. It's just totally different. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's a strange thing. It, I, I wouldn't call it a blemish necessarily. That might be too harsh. It's just, it feels a little more uncoordinated than I remember the series going later on. Yeah. That said, I think it's a good enough start to be like, I like this. I do like this. I had a good time with it. it it's it's an interesting uh, premise. I think the, the stinger at the end of the episode of seeing more people being hypnotized that maybe don't necessarily have anything to do with Brady culture is cool i think my favorite part of the episode is how much it deals with television yeah um, because the soda poppers are from a show brady culture has a show and then at the end you see that maybe there's a link between television and hypnosis the this game is made by people who have been working on video games exclusively for a very long time uh they were nine early 1990s video game makers and now it's 2006 um, so like most of their life has been in the world of video games and it's based on a comic. Uh, al although there was a TV show cartoon of Sam and Max, it's not really based on that. So to see th them, I think they're, they're, they're gearing towards saying something about television throughout this series. And I think the thing that it's doing interestingly with that is that it's structuring its own presentation like a sitcom. Yeah. So it, it has the way, like, a, a way to talk about television sort of within a television-like presentation. The medium is the message with these kinds of things. And the fact that it's it episodic makes it be able to say things about television episodes probably more easily. When the game originally came out, it was called by, by critics, like, the... The gaming world's first sitcom or video games first <laughs> sitcom, something like that. How do you feel about that? by the way, just the idea that this is a sitcom, but a video game. I like it. I was just about to ask you the exact same thing. I think um, Sam and Max lends itself very well to this sort of episodic structure because you can have different cases in every episode while having them all connect in some way. It's hard to think of series that really lend themselves well to that. Like, other series definitely did. That was Telltale's specialty. It's just kind mm -hmm. of what they did, but Sam and Max in particular, I think, really works with it just by nature of what the series is. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And it will lead to them, to Telltale, eventually getting The Walking Dead, which they base on a TV show. And that maybe just the confluence of it being just the perfect fit for something that's already very TV-like is what made The Walking Dead work out so well. Yeah. Um, that's possible. Um, so yeah, I liked it, but I, I, I think it had a lot of room for improvement and I'm hoping to see that improvement as time goes on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like, um, even in terms of, I, I liked this first episode a lot. I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to going back to it, but it's still near the tail end of the season for me. Yeah. For, it would for be really, those reasons. I, I just had a thought. We shouldn't do this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
but 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 here's the pitch of my thought we should take the episode that we cover in the episode of this podcast mm-hmm. and make a running ranked list of like where we would put each episode in the ranking oh i i think that would be a good thing to uh have this this is gonna get cut out right this is not part of our talking <laughs> talking about our plans for the episode um i think once we're done with the season we'll rank all six episodes how does, okay. how does that sound to you like once that sounds better than my them. thing Okay. That that sounds better than what I said, actually. Okay, cool. <laughs> Time for segments. Yes. Boop, 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 boop. Segment song. Our first segment is potent pickups. These kinds of games have a variety of inventory items that you pick up that you're able to use in puzzles. We talked about the Swiss cheese. That's one of them. Or the, the not Swiss cheese. We talked about Sam's gun. That's another one of them. We're going to go through each inventory item in each of the episodes and pick our favorites dustin what was your favorite inventory item from this episode my favorite inventory item from this episode even though you don't pick it up you start with it is actually sam's gun i like the che- the swiss cheese puzzle uh i think that's very fun and i you know you use it when you're shooting out the tires of uh these criminals to give them speeding tickets or not their tires their taillights Plus, I just like that Sam just has this giant cartoony gun that, like, not so much in this game, but, like, in the comics and the show, anytime it's drawn, it's not, like, a, a solid gun. It's, like, kind of warped in how yeah. it looks. <laughs> and I like that a lot. Yeah, Sam's gun, I think, lends itself to some cartoony... Uh, and I feel like throughout the course of the series, it makes me think, like... I'll find myself thinking, like, what can I use Sam's gun on in this world? What can I use this gun on to affect other items that I can use later in the episode? So that's why that's why I like Sam's gun. <laughs> I was tempted to also pick Sam's gun because it's just a, a really good, well-rounded sort of have-at-all-times tool. A lot of the other inventory items are, are transient. You have them and then you don't. Right. But, but this is sort of the thing that you always have that makes Sam unique from other adventure game characters, like maybe Guybrush Threepwood in the Monkey Island series, or Putt-Putt the car, in that he has this way to interact with the environment all the time. There was also an item like that in Hit the Road, but it wasn't the gun. It was Max. And you would use Max on things. And I think that is not good, because <laughs> as the player... You never really know what that means. You don't know what it means to use Max on a thing because it's different every time. Yeah. Uh, and when, whenever that's the case, you, you sort of present a puzzle where the consequences of your actions are unpredictable by the player. So they don't know what to do in the puzzle. I 100% agree with you. Um, I was thinking about it right when you were talking about it. I was thinking how I kind of liked that you could use Max for every for the, everything, but uh, no. Now, hearing your reasoning, I totally agree. I think Max works a lot better as uh, just your partner, just a friend walking around, and you can talk to him whenever you need help with a puzzle. He'll kind of give you hints here and there. I think that is a very good and 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 hit the road. It's very it's fun seeing how imaginative they get using Max for different puzzles, but it's also just not great as a gameplay mechanic 
Yeah, there's a thing in hip in Hit the Road where you need to get the pelt off of a robotic woolly mammoth. <laughs> and you have things that are knife-like in the game. So I was thinking, oh, well, do I, do I use the knife on it? Like, what, what do I use Jesse James's hand to grab it? That doesn't make sense. And the answer is you put Max on it, and then he chews the pelt off with his teeth. <laughs> Obviously. Like, well, yeah, I'm never going to get that. And I don't feel stupid for not getting that. I just feel like I'm never going to get that. <laughs> uh, yeah. The gun is much more consistent. It fires a bullet. It hits a thing. It, You know what it will do every time. Exactly. And, and like, I kind of feel like being able to use Max on everything kind of gets your brain thinking about how you can use Max on everything. So, you know, it, it, I, I don't think it's like the worst since, well, I, I don't know. But I do think, I think having the gun works a lot better for that exact same reason. You know exactly what it's going to do. It's straightforward every time. And that is the better idea of the two. Yeah, I had a different pick for my favorite inventory item. But honestly, this this uh, conversation has convinced me that Sam's gun is the best. I was <laughs> going to say Max's head when you put it on Brady Culture's head and then you watch the heads eat each other. Um, <laughs> That's a good one that... just because it's such a funny <laughs> item to have in your inventory is Max's yeah, head. That kind of blew my mind a little bit seeing it when I played it. Because uh, I forgot that it was there, <laughs> and uh, I remembered a lot of the rest of the episode, but I forgot that part, and that one surprised me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that was going to be my favorite inventory item, Max's head, um, but Sam's Sam's gun is better. Sam's gun is, is I think, the best inventory item in the episode, and it will be in the rest of the game. Uh, yes. So we'll see it again. Yeah, so for the rest of the episodes, I'm not going to say Sam's gun just because... Like, it's the most useful item in your inventory because it carries over and you can use it in every episode. But, you know, you don't just want to say Sam's gun every time. I I reserve the right to say it again if it's used very differently. That's true. That's true. I'll I'll let you have that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And our next segment, Linguistic Gymnastics, which is a a very forced rhyme. It really rolls off the tongue. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it does. Where we analyze our favorite dialogue lines of the episode, our, our favorite lines, our favorite quotes. Dustin, what you got? So I have three. I have three lines that I picked out in particular. The first one is when you're in Sam and Max's office and you're just kind of looking around, exploring the different things in their office. And you see a noose hanging from their coat rack. And Sam says, uh, where's the rest of the noose collection, Max? And Max responds with, it's a surprise. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> my my second one is, uh, let me see, I have it in my notes. So it's when Sam's looking at Sybil's plans for the hypnoblocker that he's going to put into his hat to save him from uh, Brady Culture's hypno rays. He looks at the blueprint for the device and he says, my lack of solid engineering background has finally caught up with me. <laughs> that's another great Sam line, yeah. Yeah, uh, he knew this day would come. <laughs> but Up till now, he'd been totally fine not understanding <laughs> how physics works. And this is the this is the real turnaround on that. <laughs> and this third one, which is my favorite one, um, I said it to you before, this is one I wish I could fit into my daily conversations. I wish I could just say this all the time. It's when you're in uh, Bosco's Inconvenience Store... And uh, you click on the restroom 
And Sam will say, I wouldn't go in there for all the tea in Tealandia. <laughs> that's that's my favorite line. That's that's probably up there for one of my favorites in the whole series. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, so mine are I I'll also do three. Uh, so when you find specs and he's spray painting the picture of Brady culture on the wall, mm-hmm. Max goes, who is that? He looks like a fried egg. And Specs goes, it's Brady Culture. You really should try one of his videos. And then Max goes, I'd rather try a fried egg. <laughs> <laughs> and then, it's good. I, I also like fried eggs, so I, I felt a kinship with Max about that. That's true. Um, trying fried eggs is a lot better than trying Brady Culture's Ibo, I would say. <laughs> this next one is when you're in Sam's dream when Sybil is analyzing you. In, in the event that the the puzzle randomization... Th- we didn't talk about this, but some of the puzzles are randomized every time you play a little bit. Um, one version of the game is that you need to prove that you have an obsession with marrying your own mother in order to... Uh, trick Sybil into thinking that you have alternative personality disorder. If you do that successfully, Sybil says, you want to marry your own mother? And then Sam says, well, this is a blow. And <laughs> I, I like the delivery <laughs> on that a lot, too. And the wizard line, you always see cops on the news beating up some guy just because he's a former child star. Uh, I like that line a lot, too. <laughs> it's true. He says what we're all thinking. <laughs> he says what we're all thinking. You always see cops on the news beating up some guy just because they're a former child star. That's our segments, and that's most of the show. Uh, I just wanted to say one other thing. Limited Run Games did a Twitch stream the other day with some members of Skunk Ape, including Dan Connors and John Scrow. John Scrow uh, was the original art director of the game and the art director on the the remaster as well. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I didn't, of, I didn't know they did this stream. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, they are two of only four full-time employees at Skunk Ape, is something I learned. Skunk wow. Ape is only four people. Um, which is impressive that they were able to get this remaster off the ground. But apparently they also had a lot of collaboration with other former Telltale people that they um, hired on freelance, on spec. Interesting. Uh, and I wrote down a quote from them because someone in the Twitch stream asked them what was their favorite Telltale game that wasn't Sam and Max? And I thought this would be interesting to you. Do you have a guess of what they said? Oh, mm. favorite Telltale game that's not Sam and Max. Um, I'm going to say Monkey Island only because that's my favorite. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So Dan Connors decided to break it down actually by episode, Ooh. which was impressive. Uh, and he said four things. He said, Monkey Island, episode five. Ooh, that's a good specifically. one. Specifically. Only that one. Strong Bad, episode four. The Walking Dead, season one, episode two. Oh, shit. And Wallace and Gromit, number three. I would not have <laughs> guessed Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, he's got one episode from Monkey Island, Strong Bad, Wallace and Gromit, and walking dead episode two i've played i don't actually know if i've played episode two of walking dead i played the first episode of walking dead um but i've played the other three the only one that i actually remember what it is is strong bad episode four that's dangerous 
<laughs> That's when they do dangerous. Um, John Scro, on the other hand, had no. He didn't take any time to think about it. He immediately <laughs> had his answer. What was it? And he Nelson Tether's puzzle agent. Ew, interesting. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, he, considering the, the I first didn't pu- guess that. puzzle agent game. That's neat. Speaking of puzzle agent, we were talking about this right before we started recording the show. When the new Telltale bought the name Telltale, they got all of their old IP, which they actually owned. But the thing is, that's less impressive than it actually sounds. Because (laughs) what Telltale (laughs) did was they always just used other people's IP. They, They licensed their game. That was their business structure. So one of the few games that they actually owned, there were three of them. Out of their 140 game episodes that they put out, like, throughout the whole time, only three of them they actually owned the IP for. That's not a big number, I don't think. No, it's a small percentage. (laughs) Um, It's around a little bit more than 2%. Uh, But it's Telltale Texas Hold'em, a poker game, and then Nelson Tether's Puzzle Agent 1 and 2. We'll get to those games when we get to them. But yeah, I'm I'm much more excited to replay Puzzle Agent now that John Scro said it's his favorite one in the whole company's library. Yeah, that that's very interesting. I never would have guessed. I I haven't played it. I haven't played the Puzzle Agent games. I played the first Puzzle Agent game, but I know there was a second one, and I'm excited to go back to it. The gameplay of those, it's one of the only times they they sort of diverge from their normal gameplay structure. But this is much more in the style of Professor Layton's gameplay, if you've ever played those. Oh, okay. It's a bunch of, like, riddles and individual puzzles that you need to solve. Um, And and they're fun. I remember the first one being fun. um, And I I especially like the art style. Um, But it's been a long time since I've played it, so uh, I'm excited to go back and see how I'll feel about it now. Do you have anything else to, to say about this episode? Um, you know, I don't think I have anything else to say about this episode. I think we wrapped it up pretty well. Yeah, my last my last note here is that the uh oh, one one thing I I did have written down here. A, a little a bit of the wrong time to bring it up, but that's fine. Chapter 1 of this episode mm-hmm. is from the very beginning of this episode to when you knock out the soda poppers. It's very long compared to the entire rest of the episode. And that seems to be a trend with LucasArts adventure games. Monkey Island has a really long first one chapter, and then like the next three chapters are all really Ooh. short. Monkey Island one and two has that. I don't know what's up with that. I don't is is that just a weird pacing thing where it's actually good pacing to have the first chapter be really long in a point and click adventure game? I I want to I want to say maybe it is because at the beginning you're just starting to uh, you know figure it out, get used to it, figure out how it works. Uh, it's setting things up, and then by the time you move on to the next chapter, you're good to go. You've figured out how this world works, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of inventory items. You, you basically know what you're expected, while that first chapter spends a lot of time getting you up to speed and uh, getting you comfortable with it. Yeah, one of the personal reasons I had for wanting to do this podcast was a lot of the games that I work on, on, on my own, are very mechanically driven games. They They have some sort of Maybe they're platformers, or or maybe they have just a a really strict way that you interact with the game. And I don't very often at all work on narrative games. So I 
wanted to to sort of study how Telltale did their stories and how they presented them. And that's that part struck uh, struck me this time, just how sort of long the, the, the first half of it was while not actually feeling poorly paced. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's just because you're doing so much in the, in those uh, first chapters. It doesn't feel as long as it does, I guess, because like those first chapters usually give you a lot of different things to do before you move on. Well, thank you so much for being with me here today, Dustin. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me if they look hard enough on Twitter at Amazing DJ Dustin. That's my Twitter handle. Look around for me and you might find me there. Okay, cool, cool. I will look for you there. I'm already find, uh, following you on Twitter, but I will also look for you now. Uh, if you want to do hey, that... thanks. It means a lot. <laughs> no problem, bud. Uh, if you want to do that with me as well, I'm also on Twitter at TheWolfFM. That's T-H-E-W-O-L-F-E fm and in the next episode of telling the tale we will cover the next episode in sam and max save the world which is episode two situation comedy talk to you then so long